0: welcome to mastering agility if you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests find like-minded people in the mastering agility discord community or both online and face-to-face events this is the platform for you grab a drink sit back and join professional scrum trainers Sander door jim sammons and their guests in an all new episode
1: good afternoon good morning from wherever you're listening in today this time, we have a very special guest. Welcome, Dave Snowden.
2: Please be with you. Thank you very
1: you. much for joining us. How are you doing? Did you recover from Scrum New Did, Europe?
2: Yeah, well, it was kind of like not a major issue. I was in the Netherlands for about a week on that. Yeah, but i just come back from Brazil, but I've now recovered from that. So, yeah, no, i kind of like cool.
1: <laughs> I can imagine that the uh, the weather adjustment is fairly big coming from Brazil and then coming over here
2: yeah it hit 51 degrees in Rio unfortunately I wasn't there because that's sort of five six degrees off die because you can't shed heat uh, heat but uh, <laughs> no, it was um it was yeah and it's in the 30s it was fine yeah but so uh, am the northern it's European if I can't wear a pullover there's something wrong with life right but, um...
1: <laughs> very true very true Jim also welcome to you good to see you again buddy how are you doing
3: yeah of course I, I can't wait for this I've been a long-time follower and reader of Dave's and I'm sure that the audience is gonna get a kick out of this um, I, I've got to ask Dave maybe just a quick easy question to start us off with is how do you spend your weeks you know you know you, you two are talking about a recent conference you were both at but what's an average week or month look like for you
2: It varies a lot. I mean, the last few months I spent, what, six weeks in um, Australia, New Zealand, China, India and Singapore. Um, And that was multiple hops between cities, got back for a couple of weeks, then Copenhagen out to the States for a couple of weeks, Copenhagen again, then Brazil for 10 days then back here. So it's a bit you're always on different time zones. It's kind of like, okay, who is it today? What's the audience? Um, and the secret there is to listen to the audience before you commit. I mean, I've normally got about 15 or 16 slides, and I may only use four of them, but I don't know which four until I get up there. Um, so that makes life a lot easier. <laughs> and then you've got meetings with clients, you're mentoring you know, junior consultants, you're working with some clients on projects. Sometimes it's conversation. So it's a, it's a melange, I think is the best phrase.
1: Does it ever get exhausting to travel all over, like, continuous?
2: Well, I'm 70 next year, and I'm still doing it. So um, I think you get energy from it, to be honest. I mean, COVID drove me insane. Um, I think my wife and I saw more more of each other during COVID than we had in 40, 46 years of marriage, and we survived it. Right. <laughs> so the thing about travel is you meet different people, you've got dinner with them, you meet in audiences, you're chatting with people. It's a constant stimulation.
3: I can imagine are there any patterns that you hear from your your speaking engagements or your mentoring and consulting that um that you just have i don't want to say become numb to but that you had maybe or maybe you wish we had moved past some of those patterns is there anything like that that sticks out to you
2: i think there's a few i mean you can see agile for the moment going exactly the same way knowledge management did yeah, I mean, if you've been around for a few decades, you see this. So, you get loads of conferences, everybody's excited. When people start to sell certifications, you know it's starting to go wrong, and Agile started off on that. Yeah, then it starts to become commoditized, then there are fewer and fewer conferences, and the next wave comes through. So, there's a degree of cynicism about that. Um, I mean, I remember doing five conferences in one day in London on KM, and it's a bit similar with Agile. So I think that's one sort of pattern that you see. I think the other pattern which really pisses me off and I just got used to it is motivational speakers. Yeah, you know, they've got a carefully rehearsed speech. You can see it, it's artfully staged, it's it's scripted, it's designed to make everybody feel good. And really nobody learns from that because they're not responding to the audience. So I I do admit to a fair fair dislike or rather weary desperation about motivational speakers and people who overprepare. How do you
1: balance those priorities then That's based on a question that's coming from the audience as well? Uh, but it's, it's a fair question, especially if you mentioned like you have five different uh, conferences in a single day, how do you balance those priorities and, um, how do you consistently prioritize on where to go and where not to go?
2: Um, and I like speaking to audiences and it's good for the company. I mean it sort of feeds in. We we don't actually actively have to prospect for sales. They sort of come in and that's part of it, yeah. And other people in the team are picking up the burden now. So generally if 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 I can I will. And um, the, the team are trying to be a bit more restricted of that and that's fine, right? But you never know. I mean you can end up turning up for a small little conference in Novi Sad. Which you would normally say is that important enough, and actually it turns out to be really important. You meet some fascinating people who have good ideas, and a major one does so. So I'm just fairly relaxed about it, to be honest.
1: Yeah, oh, that's um, pretty good. Move
2: around, see. It's it, see, seed is cheap, all right. If you if you know your subject, you can speak to any audience without notice anyway. If you don't know your subject, it, it's it's stressful.
1: Is that something that you um, uh, that you notice with those motivational speakers as well that you know, they're over-prepared yeah. on, on a certain topic, but the moment that you start asking them very specific questions, it goes sideways.
2: The speech is designed to make sure they don't get answered questions. All right. <laughs> I, mean, I remember when in Colombia it was truly terrible. I mean, he brought leather with him, which is a bad suit, bad sign, and he was dressed in a three-piece suit. And he sort of had these stage collapses with his hands in his air to exactly match the bottom A of a point he was trying to make on his slide. I mean, it was so rehearsed, it was incredible. Yeah. Um, and you get the equivalent. You know, there's there's quite a few on the Agile circuit as well. I think the key thing is, yes, you need visuals. Yes, you need support. But key bullet points, standard speeches, the one speech which you give a 100 times and you rehearse for, okay, there's a space for those. But you're not challenging the audience. I mean, if I'm being brutal about this, I'm really happy. If a third are inspired, a third are confused but curious, and a third hate my guts, and then I feel I've done a good job. how
1: do you i think that's that's a that's a tricky tricky slope as well do not get eaten by that one third part that hates your gut how did you get to that stage where you're like huh all right cool that's fine
2: i think it comes with age it also comes up and i've always done new things so you know that's my role right i mean i'm a methodologist i create methods from novel ideas if you want to new new things, you've got to accept a huge amount of rejection and you've got to keep the faith. Now, if, you, if you don't keep the faith, if you compromise, you never recover. So, I mean, I was for years making a really strong distinction between complexity science and systems thinking, and I'll still make it. But I'm less vigorous about it now because 10 or 15 years later, most of the market realizes they're different. So you don't have to be as strong on that. Yeah. So sometimes you're making a difference. But also, I mean, the way I grew up from the age of 11, every week I had to walk through the the class and I'd be given a card by the teacher. And I had to, and it was, I remember the first one I got, it said, you support capital punishment. And I had to speak for seven minutes without preparation for something I think is evil. And I did that every week from 18, from 11 to 18. And carried on with it at university. And that is a hugely valuable training because you learn to read an audience, you read everything, you don't know what you're going to get hit with, so you have to have things ready. Yet you can't prepare because you don't know until you speak what you're going to have to speak about. And I think that's a wonderful discipline and it makes you really critical. But it also gives you the realization you can't, if you want to move an audience forward, if you want to get people to do new things, you know, 13 and a half, 20% of the market will do something new. And that's a, that's from market lifecycle theory. And so if you just want to be an anodyne speaker and have everybody think you're wonderful and give you big tick boxes and you know love everything you do and clickbait, well, fine, do something ordinary. If you want to make a difference, upset some people. If you're not upsetting some people, you're not doing the right thing.
1: That's a really good analogy. And uh, part is how people um, absorb that as well. Like the, the talk that you gave last week at Scrum New York was about organizing for emergence and there definitely were some parts in there where i was like oh maybe i'm guilty of that too maybe i should reflect on my own behavior in the way that i set up my own work so that's i guess that's good um uh, but could you tell us a little bit more about in the audience about organizing for emergence what is it about because one of the things that stood out to me was how minimalistic the presentation itself was and how easy the flow of the, the conversation itself was
2: Nice and we sometimes say that complexity is a science of common sense. I mean, if, I mean it's why I often use the metaphor of children. You know, you don't give your children KPIs or OKRs, and you don't have their pocket money linked to the achievements every week, and you don't have a family mission statement. I mean, nobody in their right mind does that. I mean, when you're managing your family and your friends, you're managing for emergence. Yeah, now, then you start to get into the science. So if you've got a deeply entangled system, which is a complex system, you've got high path dependency, you can't untangle it and retangle it. You've got to live with how it is. And that's the key message in complexity. You don't start with a, You don't never have a greenfield site. You've always got to work with how things are and you don't create idealistic future states You know, and try and close the gap. You start by saying, where the hell are we? What can we do next? And that's deeply pragmatic. Yeah. And the three necessary but sufficient conditions for innovation are you have to have a lot and lot of actants. That's a technical word. It means anything which has agency in the system. Yeah, so actors are human agents, but not all actants are actors. Yeah, sometimes a process, a building, a design. So you have to have lots of actants. Very, very rich local interactions. And you can see this, for example, in termites, nests, birds, flocking you know, local interactions determine system behavior, yeah, and none of the actors in the system must have knowledge of the whole, because if they know the whole, well, A, they can't, it's too complex, but they'll bias the system, and so you'll eliminate weak signals, so anybody who says you should think holistically, to be quite honest, doesn't understand complexity science, which I quite enjoy saying it provokes a lot of people, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so this is the aims framework. All right, you you can manage the actants and interactions, you need to have monitors in place in order that you can spot weak signals. And that's where you need to th- use the whole of your workforce. Because, you know, the example I always give, only 17% of radiologists see an x ray hidden in the final, not hidden in plain sight in the final x ray. So you've got to find the 17%. Yeah, and you can't do that with a, a structured monitor, you need a diverse culturally specific, you know, culturally variant monitor. And then S stands for scaffolding, you put some structure in place. So complexity is really simple. You can create some structure, that's a scaffolding, you can put monitors in place, you can play with the actants and the interactions. And the minute something good starts to happen, you amplify it. And the minute something bad starts to happen, you dampen it. So it really is very, very simple. And that changes the way we do system design. You know, If you move from entity modeling to actant modeling, you can actually design systems which are much more fluid where you codify progressively based on need and you don't assume you can work out up front what the system should look like overall.
3: You, You mentioned earlier, Dave, that if you can see the entire system, it's not a complex system. Is that, is that a definition? Like if someone thinks that like, yeah, I can see the beginning, the middle and the end of this system by definition, is it not complex
2: no, by definition, it's extremely ordered or you're delusional, one or the other, all right? Um, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to the core thing, all right? Um, you, you give radiologists a batch of x-rays. You ask them to look for anomalies. On the final x-ray, there's a picture of a gorilla, which is forty time, 48 times the size of a cancer nodule. 83% of radiologists don't see it, Yeah, because there are too many interacting factors, and you're only mm-hmm. processing about 4 or 5% of data before you make a decision anyway. Yeah, you're constantly micro-hallucinating and matching reality. We don't scan everything unless we're autistic. So it's actually physically impossible to know the system as a whole. Yeah.
3: And, and I I I read that study and I think one of the other takeaways is radiologists are trained to look for specific things. They're trained to look small. They're trained to look for specific things and that's why they miss that big gorilla in the in the corner what do you there's a question in the chat that might be a segue to this is like what do you think the professional agile or professional scrum or kanban communities get wrong about complexity and what could they learn from your community to some company? extent
2: they're even even more constrained than radiologists. Um, because the whole systems analyst movement is about you know, structured, text-based, recording, record of what people do. And the whole point about the radiologists is you only see what you expect to see. So a couple of big problems for the Agile community. One is users don't know what to ask for. Most of them don't know what technology can do, yeah, which is why one of the things we focus on is mapping unarticulated needs and creating micro-experiments up front with technology. Because then we can reveal patterns which otherwise wouldn't happen. So this very linear process of interviewing people. Yeah? The other thing, just to complement on that, if you interview people it's from the same body of work, after you've done two or three interviews, you form a subconscious hypothesis, and you only hear things that match that, that hypothesis thereafter. So although the radiologists are highly trained and not expecting to see gorillas, it matches in with a body of stuff, is we don't pay attention unless there are anomalies. So if the gorilla is real there's an anomaly if the gorilla is a picture there's not an anomaly so we don't see it and the same is generally true of humans if you're walking down the street you don't think about walking until you stumble then you pay attention this is andy clark and other people's work so if you want people to see things differently you've got to create anomalies and experts generally don't like anomalies the more expert they are the more entrained they are And it makes them really valuable in many circumstances. But where there are weak signals, they are always going to ignore them.
1: Isn't that the same case with amplifying or dampening those initiatives within the context of an enterprise? I mean, if we're looking for something good, it's easy to find something good and amplify that. But if we're not really expecting to see that, how does that work? Like, how can we pragmatically apply that? Mm
2: -hmm. We do it in a couple of ways so one is astride mapping which is the latest thing which is actually going to be bigger than Kinevin. i mean it's taken off a lot faster it's much more substantial and it is a complexity framework all right whereas Kinevin is a decisions for framework this is a complexity one so what we do there is we look at the actants, dance which are either actors or constraints or constructors we keep breaking those down because you want to work with smaller and smaller things this is a key lesson of complexity if you work with smaller and smaller things, they can combine and recombine in novel ways. Bigger things don't combine and recombine and anomalies become easier to detect. So we map those onto an energy time grid. And then we focus on micro interventions to mean that the dispositional state of the system is more likely to lead to the things we want. You know, this is energy gradients. We want to make the energy cost of sin higher than the energy cost of virtue. And then we're not actually looking to know what to do we're looking to change the state so that good things are more likely to happen the other thing remember a lot of this stuff comes from our work on weak signal detection for the us government you know before and after 9 11. um one of the big things we do is to map street narrative right so you know what what's the day-to-day stories and we're doing this in engineering environments at the moment is replacing monthly reports with continuous narrative capture from engineers on the ground which means weak signals become apparent much faster because they're smaller and we can actually detect for anomalies. Something we're about to launch, I think in we launch end of December 1st week in January, is a joint thing with um, Comic Agile where you choose one of six cartoons which illustrates your Agile culture. You tell a story about that, you index it, and then we actually show you a, a contoured landscape like a map which shows dominant views and minority views. Now, the whole point is to make something visible to you. to say, look, these people are seeing the world differently from these people, go and talk with them. Now, if those people come into your office and say, we've got a different idea, you'll ignore them. If you have a visualization and you can see that these groups are seeing things radically differently, you're curious, so you invite them in and listen to them. And that that's called triggering attention. Yeah? So, again, this is where you want to move into abstraction. I mean, all of our work is quantitative, not qualitative. And I would say that's a big problem with the agile movement. Is they're qualitative and memory based? They're not quantum science based. Yeah. Um, so all of that is kind of like relatively easy, but you need to think. And that's why we use human sensor networks. If you've got a workforce of even 20, some people in that will see things differently from everybody else. But you won't listen to telling people they should listen to people who think differently never works. I mean, we've been trying that for centuries. It hasn't worked. Why people carry on, I don't know. You need to create processes and structures, which means people see things that are anomalous.
3: Well, one question I have is you had mentioned that Kenevan's a decision framework and your new model is a complexity model. So uh, assuming the outcome of a decision model is to help you make decisions, what's the outcome of... A complexity model is it an optimized system a slightly more optimized system or
2: like what's well, the intent- first of all i mean kinevin is very different from the stacy framework so and i think that's why it started to get more controlling agile because the Stacey framework says everything is complex it's all about human perception if you look at the axes kinevin is actually based on natural science and it says there are three types of system in nature ordered complex and chaotic and there are phase shift differences between them and the thing we always acknowledge was the value of order which Stacy rejected yeah that there's nothing wrong with time boxes and waterfall if the constraint structure allows it so that can was designed to say different things work in different contexts estuarine mapping is moving more into pure complexity its origins are the constructor theory and theoretical physics and it says energy matters so whatever has the lowest energy gradient is likely to win out. Uh, this is one of the things that a lot of us are really worried about on AI at the moment because it's easier to go with the AI. It doesn't take thought. And therefore, we might lose the capacity to do human thinking, which is abductive, not inductive. AI is always inductive. Yeah? So mapping the energy gradients tells you what things are going to be almost impossible to achieve. What could change quickly It's called an affordance landscape, the things that you can actually change. So the output of s mapping is to tell you where you can play. You don't start with where you'd like to play. You start with where the hell you can play. yeah. And you do lots of small things, and then the pattern of the whole will start to emerge. And there's an irony in this. If you do lots of small things, it's easier to see the big picture. If you try and see the big picture, you miss the small things, which will determine how things come out.
1: And that kind of ties into a question coming from the audience. like, Is there a risk in losing purpose, uh, or the larger picture, if we break things into two small portions, it's
2: the other way around. If anything, I mean, one of the things we're now arguing, by the way, is that you shouldn't try and direct a system top down anyway. It doesn't work. You know, so things like purpose statements, and by the way, next year we're going to get deep purpose because the consultants have run out of money selling platitudes on purpose, and that will be deep purpose which is just like mission and value statements, right? We take a different approach. So if we're doing continuous bottom-up capture, and we're now doing this things like you know, replacing, we can actually replace a retrospective with continuous capture of people's observations. We can get 360 feedback from users on Agile teams based on continuous capture. Yeah? And what that allows us to do is to then look at patterns in that yeah, as, as they start to come through. And as the patterns are beneficial and that's a judgment call, but that can be made at different levels. You, and this is this new theory of change. You say, I want more of these and fewer of those. Now that way you can engage a lot of people very quickly yeah. making change. Yeah?
3: This idea of anomaly detection has came up a number of times recently for me and, and on previous episodes we've had as well. And is there a quantity of anomalies that are required or would you say a single anomaly bears investigation? Because when I've talked to more quant people in my network, you know they they talk about statistical relevance and in these things. And I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on this idea of of anomalies. This
2: is called the problem of abduction, which is what I was set by a former national security advisor in the states to solve on the DARPA program. So I have an intuitive insight, I spot something I realize is significance. You have one, thousands of people have them. How do I decide which I should look at? Because I can't look at all of them. Yeah, with the benefit of hindsight, everybody can see what we should have paid attention to. And the common phrase on this is why didn't we join up the dots? Now, if you take dots, if I have four dots, there are six connections that can form. There are 64 possible patterns. If a pattern is a dot or connection or any combination, if I go up to 10 dots, there are more than 3.4 trillion patterns. Yeah, if I go up to four dots, there are 4.8 quadrillion. So I can't possibly determine upfront what I should pay attention to. So that's where we use these techniques of what's called mass sense, which is presenting a problem to the entire workforce or to broader networks getting them to interpret that network, getting to interpret that material, then we look at dominant views, minority views. then we can represent those minority views to a larger population to test, and we can go through multiple iterations to test for coherence. But what we're doing is quantifying human judgment. And we're doing that through high abstraction metadata. We're not trying to take a black box statistical approach, we're quantifying human judgment in that sense. And the idea there is to work out which are the coherent pathways we should explore and which are incoherent. So we shouldn't. So to take my favorite example of that, we know that evolutionary theory is wrong. Um, I mean, not so long ago, we discovered that culture can inherit. That's called epigenetics, and that basically challenged previous evolutionary theory. But at any point in the history of evolution post Darwin, the science has been coherent to the facts. Yeah, more facts come in, we get anomalies, we realise we need to move on. But that's a legitimate pathway. Young Earth creationism, on the other hand, is incoherent. It's not worth you pursuing. You don't pursue it. It's totally incoherent. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing in corporate policy is you don't, you can't work out in advance what the right thing is to do. But you have to identify which coherent pathways you should explore. And by the way, that's also critical on software design. Yeah, because at the moment we design whole systems, we don't we don't design ecosystems, in which what's practical will emerge in practice. Because you can't work out before you practice something, you know what will work in a complex space. Actions actions determine needs in some way.
1: Do you think that has something to do with the um, with the commoditization of agile and agile frameworks as well?
2: Well, I think that was inevitable, all right. And I think part of the problem was, I mean. I've always had a huge amount of respect for Scrum. We're partnering with Scrum on the new HEXI approach. Without Scrum, you would not have heard of Agile. Yeah, XP on its own, DSDM on its own would not have done it, all right? And so Scrum was the thing which made Agile, yeah? Um, The only problem I got is that if you look at DSDM Consortium, and I was one of the three founders of that, yeah? And that was one of the three feeds into the Agile formation. We basically started off by saying, well, we need to get competitive companies together and create an open source standard. We don't want to make it proprietary. And the trouble is Scrum were already established when they came into that. And then everybody copies that model. And then ultimately you get the total incoherent nonsense, which is safe, which basically takes that model and just takes it to excess. Right. Um, and the whole of the Agile movement was then founded around, oh, I will create a training course and grant people certificates, right? And I'll do it based on, you know, when well, case of safe, my partial memory of three projects I was involved in and the bit of Roop, all right? So it's not a scientific basis anyway, right? So that's the problem. And that means commodification came very early to Agile. Okay? And when something comes to be commoditized, that's the time you do something new, because once it's commoditized, it's become routine. Scrum masters have been laid off left, right and center. IT directors are challenging the whole concept. People desperate to maintain their status say, well, I've always talked about agility, not agile, which is actually mainly a lie. They've always talked about agile anyway. They just they've been chameleons. All right. Um, so certainly the big thing we're doing now with Hexi, which is open source. We're not going to own it. Things I disagree with will be in it is to break every agile method and framework down into its lowest coherent unit and create kits by which people can reassemble those things into novel practices by multi-vendor multi-multi ideology if you want to put it that way yeah let's say Scrummer Scrummer actually working on their kit at the moment we've got kanban but we've got both scrum groups yeah um, and the idea is to re-energize Agile by moving it back to, well, this thing works from this method, this works from that method. There's no reason why you shouldn't peel out a sprint from Scrum and replace it with a three-month time box in some contexts. Yeah, so that's based on the complexity principle. And that, yeah, the first time I saw Safe, which is in Novi Sad, I remember looking at it and I wrote a furious blog post yeah, while I was listening to the speech called the infantilization of management, which is still quite current, right? Because I said, this is not scaling a priori because it's a complex system. You don't scale a complex system by imitation, reputation, or combination. You scale it by decomposition and recombination. That's how DNA and everything else works. So that's what we're doing with Agile Methods Is and anybody can contribute to this, any of their own setting. We're not taking other people's material and then badging their own training around it. Yeah, if you scan the hexagon card, the QR code will take you to the originator of the method for training. Yeah, rather than somebody who's doing secondary training on the process. Yeah, so that's kind of like the basic principle. Yeah.
3: So, Dave, before kind of a segue from from this uh, hexi concept when i knew you were coming on the show i i did some thinking about it i talked to some people in, in my network that i trust and said you know what would you ask what are you intrigued by what what are your feelings uh, around complexity and Kinevin and and things and i'm going to ask a mishmash question of a number of those of that feedback i got and and you know we can say it's mine and i will take uh take ownership of it is if we balance a lot of the posts out there, not not just from you, but from others about what's wrong with the industry, what's wrong with commoditization, the big consultancies this, and you know, all I have to do is look at my feed and scroll, and I'll see people saying scrum masters are terrible, they're not fit for the job, and agile coaches should be ashamed and they shouldn't call themselves that, and this, this, and you know, this, that, and the other. And then when we see the movement from Stacy to Knevin and now to even more complex models. To me, it sounds like the, the, the opinion of some is a lot of these people are not qualified to be doing what we're doing and we're making it more complex. Like personally, I'm interested in this idea of reducing things down to modular and reassemblable pieces. But if we believe the assertion that a lot of people are not capable of doing this, is this just going to put that even more out of reach?
2: First of all, I don't think they are right. I mean, I think, a, and I think people who say all Scrum Masters are terrible and Agile coaches should be fired have got it wrong. Um, I mean, part of the problem I think Scrum Masters and Agile have got is that they didn't realise if you become an overhead when you get a recession, you're first in line for the chop, regardless of the value you've done. Yeah, that, that's basic survival tactics. And I think part of the problem Agile mm-hmm. has got. There's a lot of people who become millionaires selling Agile consultancy. They've been in a seller's market, and they're suddenly in a buyer's market. They don't know how to cope. Yeah? And therefore, a lot of them are falling back to say, everything which went before us is wrong, and now we got something new. Now You can see this in Nonsense Like Agile 2.0, which has this appalling chapter describing why none of the Agile Manifesto writers would speak with them. And the answer is, well, you're not doing anything really new. You're just trying to say, we'll throw away everything which happened before, now we'll start again, and we've got it right. Yeah? And that's a disease. Yeah, um, I've never liked business process reengineering services. It was a disaster, but there was nothing wrong with it in core manufacturing. And the essence of Kinevin is to say, different things work in different contexts. It also comes from a core principle of our work is if you can't draw a framework on the back of a table napkin from memory, it has no use. Yeah, and that's an absolute. Yeah? Everything we create, you can draw in the back of a table and acronym from memory or it's a mnemonic because then it can be used for active sense making. The reason people make models more complicated is to create dependency. And that's what you can see with the big consultancies. And remember, one of the reasons we knew Agile was becoming mm-hmm. commoditized is the big consultancy started to move into it yeah? because they only work with commoditized products for end game market. Yeah, they don't do the novel stuff at the front end. So I would be more flexible about this. And I think we need to stop condemning every. And there's some things which is plain wrong. Other things are mistaken, but a lot of things are well intentioned. Different things work in different contexts. In some contexts, some things might work. Yeah, that's the approach we should be adopting. And by the way, complexity is really simple. I mean, I've I've got it on one slide now. It's taken me 15 years. And to be clear, to make something simple takes that long anybody can throw something complicated together and, and sell it yeah. tomorrow but you know we now got it's very simple we've got aims we got the alternatives to mental models i can literally show it as a coherent pathway on one slide and people can draw it from memory complexity properly understood makes life very very simple yeah, because there's only a limited number of things you can work with and a limited number of things you have to do
1: Mastering Agility only works with organizations aligned with our values. And that's exactly why we are excited to work with our sponsor. Scrum Match is the free platform for professionals run by professionals. On Scrum Match, true scrum masters get hired by companies serious about their popular framework. The awesome people behind this platform have decades of experience, among them, a professional scrum trainer for scrum.org. They've interviewed, trained and coached hundreds of like-minded people. And they use this exact experience to make you stand out from the crowd and help you get in touch with companies looking for true scrum masters. So go to scrummatch.com and sprint to your dream
3: job. Yeah, I think that intelligent brevity is a lot harder and many of these large consultancies have hundred plus slide decks and you might show up with one and they're like, well, you know, how, how smart can this be? It's one slide, I've got 30 to describe this same thing.
2: I don't know how bad it is, and I won't mention the consultancy, but I was doing a project for one of the international agencies in Washington. I spent three weeks writing a report on the state of their knowledge management and how they should do it and discovered that the other consultancy was working. This is one of the top ones. It right, was working in parallel to me. I charged 50,000. I think they charged 4 million. And all they produced was a slide set, whereas I produced the report, and I got sent the slide set. Two-thirds of the slides were the ones that Larry Prusak and I used, when we taught that consultancy about knowledge management, they just regurgitated them, All right? And one of the reasons that AI mm. is outperforming management consultancy at the moment. So consultants, you know, there's a famous thing on Boston Consulting Group. They studied seven percent of Boston Consulting Group and discovered people using AI were more productive than people who didn't. And my argument was, "So is that just how poor big consultancy is?" Yeah, if AI can pass the Wharton MBA, then the Wharton MBA is just regurgitating other people's material, not teaching people to be original. That's the problem. Okay? So I think the big cons- the big consultancy models, which are manufacturing models, require highly codified stuff, which is recipe-based. And we're increasingly moving. And remember, big consultancies grew on the back of BPR. They didn't exist before then. Yeah? We're now in a world which requires chefs, not recipe book users. Yeah, and chefs make things look simple, right? Um, but they've got a huge amount, of, they've got both practical knowledge and theoretical knowledge, what Aristotle calls Sophia and Prenesis. They've learned their trade through apprenticeships. I mean, there's one keynote speaker in Agile who famously said in one of his books, Yeah, you know, I, I failed in everything I did until I decided to teach other people how to do it. And he thinks that's a compliment. Right, I don't. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, yeah, you, you need to have the experience nice. of doing things if you're going to teach
1: them. A couple of questions uh, from, coming from the audience. We have a ton of great questions, so I'm trying to, to get as much in as possible. Uh, one is coming from Antonio, who you just mentioned, everyone can contribute. Um, how and where can we contribute, and where can the, the, uh, the audience contribute?
2: Okay. So the Hexy Kit, which is our methods, is now up for sale. All right we we put it on sale this week and that's been a pent-up demand we're getting ready to launch the agile so th- the way hexi works is our methods have our branding on them yeah and um, everybody else's methods have their own branding on them and we have this general brand called hexi so we're deliberately making sure nobody thinks we're trying to own this and it will go into public ownership shortly yeah so there will be two scrum sets i think there's a kanban set come in there's a team topology set coming we're working on all of those anybody with a set of methods can actually put them into hexi and we will print produce cell for them okay? that's the principle but we've also open sourced the standards so anybody can produce their own hexes they don't have to come through us yeah the standard is open source i don't advise you to it's taking us a lot of time to get it right but you're free to do it So basically, we're going to launch that shortly. If you look at Nigel Thurlow's book on flow, uh, he's just used hexes throughout that in terms of the way it works, all right? So there's going to be opportunities to play with that. If you've got your own favourite methods, they're not in it. There'll be opportunities for you to go to a website and load them up, have them validated, and we can produce them. So the idea is to engage the whole community in it. We're actually thinking about making it a community investment opportunity. Am um, I allowed to people to buy into it collectively in terms of the way it works? Now, I will say I will continue to condemn several things, several of the methods in the Hexipac. That's that's my right and my role. Yeah, the stuff which I believe in will have our brand on it, but we're not going to be, we're not going to act as gatekeepers. Yeah, um, because you never know what will work anyway.
1: I think that's pretty cool. Uh, I think it's wonderful, but at the same time, I'm I'm curious because you said go into a really owned craft, do put into practice, um, and that takes years of experience. At the same time, it seems like our attention span, especially organizational attention span, for really dealing with these longevity kind of uh, research and figuring out their own solutions is incredibly short. So how do these tie together and how can we make sure that organizations actually put in the effort to make sure that it really resonates and sticks?
2: I think one is we've got to start to shift in IT towards being a profession. Yeah. I mean, I see people with 55 sets of letters after their name all achieved by going on a two week course and doing an open book exam. All right. So we've got to shift away from that. That's amateurish. Yeah. We need to be more like accountancy or law or medical. Yeah, so you've got to have the theoretical knowledge, you've got to have the practice, you've got to be accepted by your peers. All of those sort of things are actually quite important. And IT hasn't got anywhere near that yet. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the areas I'm interested in, in terms of how we develop that. In terms of organisations, the sort of fad cycle, the very short attention span, the CEOs who only last for 18 months. That's a phenomenon of the last two or three decades. It didn't exist before that. And it's part of the problem with the focus on codification, the, the belief everything, only it's only valuable if it's written down as a process or if it's text. Yeah. Now, this is an issue for IT, by the way, you can only write down less than 10% of what you know. So if you rely on what's written, and that's another problem with AI, you're handling a very restricted data set in terms of the way it works. Right. So I think as we face increasing levels of uncertainty, and we're now seeing complexity coming through big time, by the way. It was We had to sell the theory until COVID. Now we're just selling the practice. You don't have to explain the theory anymore. You can just say, would you like one of these? We're going to face two more major plagues in my lifetime. We've got the concept we're going to have massive heat deaths shortly. We're going to have a refugee crisis in Europe like we've never seen before. The world is actually moving into a state of continuous uncertainty. And that's going to require companies who survive in that will be resilient and yeah this is what the european union field guide was about we're now designing practices which allow a company to deal with unknown unknowables okay so you create the capability in the organization that the latest big thing i'm working on by the way is distributed decision support yeah uh, which basically means networks of roles can make decisions without bureaucracy, so you can get real-time decision-making. Yeah? And that means that you can have 90% of the decisions made without bureaucratic control, without predetermined ideal outcomes, and you only pay attention when it's an anomaly. And that's going to be the next paradigm. Yeah? And in response to Carsten, by the way, we have a deal with Ivor Jacobson. The essence stuff will come across at practice level into hexi.
1: Now, thank you for immediately uh, answering that question. Uh, one of the things that pops to mind when you're talking about how to deal with unknown unknowables is it almost brings me the same concern as the book um, doing twice the work and half the time where people only read the title and then think, hey, uh, Dave figured something out where we can deal with anything that we don't know.
2: Well, we're trying to make it simple. I mean, I famously created a double matrix um years ago, which went known, unknown, unknowable in terms of the situation, and known, unknown, inconceivable in terms of our perception, and made the mistake of presenting it in the Pentagon one day and then couldn't use it again for another four or five years. All right. um But Rumsfeld forgot the unknowable and unimaginable. Yeah. Now, if you look at the EU Field Guide, I mean, and after COVID, nobody challenges that anymore. Yeah, If you look at the EU Field Guide, it talks about five things you need to do as an organisation. These are really simple. Yeah, Build your employees as a human sensor network. Yeah, Make sure everybody is within two phone calls of the CEO, which you can do within two years. And yeah? there's a method for that. Train people in specialised roles for crisis. Yeah um map what you know at the right level of granularity so you can repurpose it very quickly in a crisis and map the energy gradients and continuously map them so you know what's easy what's difficult what's impossible so we've made it into a very simple five stage process eu branding on that yeah and say look you just do this because it creates a general capability within the organisation yeah and distributed decision making is the next big step on that because If you look at what slows down, in a crisis, everybody in COVID was allowed to make decisions without bureaucracy. After COVID, it changed. And one of the reasons is nobody changed the basic um, framework. So we know that people don't suffer stress if they make decisions in role combinations. They do suffer stress if they make decisions as individuals. You can see this in medical, military, firefighters and elsewhere. So what we're doing is basically creating role combinations this is about to move into simulation testing if anybody's interested where one of the roles is completely anonymous so you don't know who it is and that way you can actually authorize considerable decision making because you've got a a panopticon effect and that means most of the decisions can be made and all i do is monitor that for anomalies and i trigger my senior executives in on those so as i say there's lots of things we can do which are actually quite simple yeah. Um, and it's all about not dealing with things a problem at a time, but creating a capability to handle problems we cannot yet anticipate. Which is actually how nature works. I mean, give you another example, something else I'm working on at the moment, is looking at ways in which nature has developed network capability to find and distribute resources without intelligence. Now, you've got the waggle dancer bees, you've got fungal roots, you've got scholastic searches. We're about to develop a body of methods based on that, yeah? In order to help people understand uncertainty. But it's this switch from problem solution to capability, which is the big one.
3: So just for the audience, I think if anyone's curious about uh, your Rumsfeld comment, just do a Google for unknown unknowns. But when you mention that the entire world is be, is realizing or is headed towards constant complexity, is this a reference or could we uh, connect that to this idea of VUCA and say everything now is at some level VUCA? Because I hear from people all the time when they understand this idea, they're like, yeah, but that's not us. Like our stuff's very well understood. We have a very defined process like that. Those things don't apply to us, but I seem to, I, I feel like I agree with you, which is, complexities everywhere and some people are blind to it or maybe willfully blind to it.
2: Yeah. There's a whole body of body of companies about to go through what we call a Kodak moment. Yeah. Remember Kodak created digital photography and they weren't prepared to go over to it because they thought chemicals was where the money is. And yeah, the minute people say you just reference Kodak, all right. The market research industry is about to hit that big time, by the way, massively. Yeah. Um, which is an opportunity for us as it happens. So I'm quite pleased with that one. Right? <laughs> but um, I think the secret, the, the point is, the political context is changing. AI is changing everything. Yeah. Um, ecological collapse is changing everything. And let me just give you some of the scary scenarios. What happens if the whole world ends up like South Africa with two or three hours every day without electricity? That's quite feasible. You know, the U.S. Navy are training officers in sextants so they can navigate without GPS. Right? So one of the dangers for companies is we lose capacity to do things under hardship. I mean, I go walking you know, most weekends. Yeah? Every four or five walks, I actually only use a compass and map. I stop using GPS because otherwise I'll lose the capability. Yeah, once every year we go on a night navigation exercise where we don't have maps and we don't have compasses and we don't have GPS and we've got to work out by memorizing the map in advance and feeding the contours of the land. Yeah? So companies are going to increasingly face that. The refugee crisis is going to be massive because if the temperature goes, I think, to 58 degrees C, everybody dies unless they get in air conditioning. Now, over the next two to three years, we'll see the first events with that. That's going to create a refugee exodus. That changes supply chains. It changes food chains. It changes issues about employee retention. Yeah? All of these things are going to hit even the most stable of industries. And if you start to prepare for it now, you may survive it. If you don't prepare for it now, you'll be one of the casualties. Remember when um, IBM almost went under because the world, because hardware became a commodity and software became dominant? The entire European computer industry died within two years. Yeah, you know, Bull went, Siemens went, except for medical, I could go on with them, all right? Yeah, massive phase shifts are known, and the more complacent you are, the more you like to be a victim of them.
3: And interestingly, they pivoted to consulting, to...
2: Yeah, but you have to remember, it was a near disaster, so I was in data sciences. We were bought to be the foundation of IBM Global Services. So they made the right strategic decision, and Denny was behind that, and Lou was behind that. But then they couldn't break away from a manufacturing model. They, they never understood consultancy and services. And if you look at it, they have consistently lost money on every acquisition because they still think they're in a hardware development environment and a services environment is radically different. And I would say, by the way, that's a big problem for Agile. Agile still thinks it's manufacturing a product. It isn't. It's creating an environment in which the products will emerge. And until Agile makes that switch, and happy to talk to people about that, it's going to be stuck in these manufacturing models of efficiency and story points and all that sort of stuff. And that makes you a service company to the executive, not strategic. And you really want to be strategic over the next four or five years.
1: Is that where you feel the opportunities lie as well? I mean, you talked about two crises here uh crises bring opportunity as well you've seen that with covid as well like how many organizations thrived on on selling face masks or i don't know whatnot um would that be your general
2: advice i think so i mean yeah. the next plague looks likely to be bacterial not virus um we're getting some early signs already on that things are thawing out in siberia which we've got no resistance to Last time we had a major bacterial plague, we lost, I think, two thirds of the workforce. And that opened up possibilities. Yeah. And yeah, you Mm. can look at that. And you but it's it's resilience. One of the reasons human beings survive is we're resilient. Yeah, we're not over specialized. Yeah, we're adaptive. The danger is we're becoming over specialized by over dependence on technology. Technology should augment human intelligence, not replace it. And if you look at it, some of the elite schools in America now are refusing to let their kids use technology because they know it will give them strategic advantage over people in state mm-hmm. schools.
3: It's interesting you mentioned.
2: Yeah, they're I And mean, I had a major argument with Sam Polizana on this. Because he basically said we, we AI will remove all of middle management. And I said, well, where the hell do you think senior management are going to come from? Yeah, because at the, if you don't have the offensive <laughs> model, where you know, where does the human direction come from? And, and by the way, the carbon cost of one training data set for AI is the equivalent of a transatlantic flight. So start to think about the implications of that.
3: You mentioned COVID earlier, and one of the things I observed and was remembering when you were commenting about that is the early days of COVID, like, you know, the first I don't know, let's say three to six months. I was working in and with big companies. And what I heard was everyone should make local decisions. They should do what's best for them. We trust you. We do this. And sure, there were some issues, but mostly it was working. People were mm-hmm. doing the right thing. I mean, yes, there was a lot of emotions at play in the world at that point. But what we've been seeing since then is is a wrestling for control back, and I think the very managers that you're referencing now are typically, in my clients and in my, in my network, what I see, it's the, it's the age-old um, issue of, well, what relevant, how, how am I going to remain relevant if we empower yeah. localized decision-making? I, I, how am I going, what am I going to do
2: here? I think you're actually wrong on that. I, I think that that's misattributation of motive. Mm. Um, what works in a crisis won't work when a crisis is over. I was working with some companies and saying, "Look, you just relaxed all the rules to allow local decision making. This is a chance to modify the rules. If you just assume you can carry on like this, when the crisis is over, the rules will come back in spades." Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's a factor, right? And genuinely, people are not. I. I don't think people are that. Most people are not motivated by power and control. They're actually motivated by risk. Yeah, and they want to reduce risk. Yeah, one of the only reasons McKinsey survives, they don't add any value in any consultancy assignment I've ever seen, is nobody gets fired for implementing a McKinsey's report. It reduces the risk to the executive. And agile people keep complaining about sea level mm-hmm. people not making the right decisions. They should be bloody sea level I was for years. All right. On average, you get three to five minutes to make a decision when the people presenting alternatives have spent years researching the subject. You're faced with massive pressures from shareholders and other people around you, which they've got no bloody idea what you're having to deal with. And 80% of the time, you know you're making the wrong decision, but you haven't got any choice about it. Yeah, you know, that's sea level. Right? And we need to start to understand, we need to build ecosystems and not create these dependencies on people and understand these flips. I mean, rules are generally designed for the center of a Gaussian distribution. All right. Reality often is in the tails of a Pareto distribution. Yeah? And the issue is to know when you're in each, because you can have rules and processes where you get Gaussian distributions. In Pareto distributions, you need to have distributed distributed mechanisms to make decisions quickly. And so decrying rules and focus and power is the wrong way about it. It's to actually reduce people's risk by introducing new methods. Yeah? One of the things we say about estrone mapping is do this before you start a project. We actually think it will replace strategy over time, but we're not going to say that. It's kind of like, do this first, then you know what's impossible. You're reducing the risk of the project. And that's how you get people to buy into novelty. You offer to reduce their risk. Yeah, and the other thing, by the way, you—I and this is the, one of the very few things I agree with Nanaka on, is you sell middle, bottom up. Agile suffered because it became a C-level initiative. And SAFE played to that, Right. Um, what you actually want to do is to solve the problems of middle management, and then you've got something which is sustainable, and that should be the focus.
3: So, I love this idea of reducing risk versus my, my knee-jerk thought of retaining control, but how would you respond to a, a leader or manage, middle manager who says, I am re-implementing this process or policy because of this risk should they be validating that's a very real risk or should they be is there an issue with the assumption of risk when we it comes have to, to have putting those policies or
2: processes back in place but remember most everybody in agile decries scientific management and they're actually not decrying scientific management they're decrying systems thinking from the 80s onwards business process reengineering. None of them have actually read Taylor, even though they use the phrase Taylorism. Taylor was actually radically improved the workplace. OK, we now look at production lines. We say, oh, how horrible. You should have seen what was there before. And the other thing about Taylor is he preserved an apprentice model of management. Yet yeah, most managers and senior executives grew up in the company. They had their informal networks. They knew how things work. They can exercise judgment. What happened when we switched from a military metaphor, which was Taylorism, and remember military met- metaphors are tremendously adaptive. They delegate authority very quickly in context. We moved to an engineering paradigm in the 80s and 90s. Engineers don't like uncertainty. So they wanted everything to be rules and processes and outcome and you manage uncertainty by defining the end point. And that's really damaged us over the last three to four decades because it's destroyed adaptability in the system. So part of what you're trying to say is you've got to start to restore a different type of management. You've got to start thinking about network management. And you've got to start trying to get people to change the risk balance from doing something which familiar to doing something which will genuinely reduce the risk. And that's a job of persuasion and example and everything else. And software can play a huge part in that if it starts to see itself as strategic rather than just responding to demands. Right. That's my switch from manufacturing. IT can do distributed decision support tomorrow and present the results to an executive and make an executive realise just what you can do with a distributed network before the executive has asked for it. Yeah? And the IT departments need to be spending five to ten percent of their time in producing demonstrators and ideas to address real-world problems of senior middle management. Yeah, which actually means, and this is what we talk about, unarticulated needs, the reason Apple are so successful is they don't listen to customers. Well, they do, but not in a conventional way. They don't produce something customers have asked for, they produce something customers realize they're desperate for once they get it. And IT needs to take that attitude to executive need.
1: How can we convey this message? Because I agree with pretty much everything that you're saying here. On the other hand, I see the struggles bringing this idea to organizations that already are struggling to to bring in an easy concept like scrum and decentralizing that decision making Now this is I could never bring this in, in an eloquent way like you put this here, uh, but this is going to be such a hard sell in the organizations that I work with
2: um, yes and no. I mean first of all, introduce scrum Scrum is one of the most effective methods I've ever seen for making complex things complicated, and you need that. You might want to vary it a bit but it's one of the best method sets around all right it's well developed it's evaluated the problem is when you say it's a framework and everything has to be done in scrum now that's the problem is it? this concept of universals and the other thing is complexity says find out where you are and do small things to change it well that's what how you sell it find out where people are find out what their intractable problems are do small things to make a difference gradually start to get alignment with a new way of working so Yeah, agile culture we know culture is a big issue right we can now measure culture on you know a monthly basis for less than a thousand dollars as a pattern not as a set of causes and then you can sit down with people and say i want more stories like these and fewer stories like that which means you can involve people so we can reduce the cost and risk of culture change we can use astride mapping before a project to identify where you shouldn't go and how you make the path easier, easier before you even start the project. So the essence of complexity is lots and lots of little things which change the space, right? And just to answer to Abby, one of the things Agile Apple are brilliant at is what's called acceptation in biology. So the technology, when you switch an iPad around and it changes orientation, which everybody takes for granted these days, the origination of that was an IBM technology designed to lift the heads off a disk so you, you would the disk would survive dropping your your PC. What Apple have been brilliant at is finding technologies which in for one third purpose and then experimenting with them in a completely different environment. And by the way, that's the history of innovation. The history of innovation is repurposing existing capability, not inventing it from scratch. They were also really lucky, and I claim some benefit in this, is that Next went bankrupt. I had a pile of books thrown at me by Steve Jobs in that process but next became the basis of iOS now without without next failure you wouldn't have iOS and you wouldn't have apple so managing for serendipity is a key aspect of complexity if you can't exploit accidents and Steve Jobs was brilliant at exploiting accidents yeah and actually most human change is accidental not designed
3: dave i i want to be conscious of our time One one last question, and this is kind of maybe a little bit of a departure, but it's my I would guess that the tail of a lot of these ideas, like the ones you're working on right now, um, might take decades to bear fruit. And when I, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm thinking about the impact my work has. And this has came up in previous episodes with previous guests. Is does that bother you? How do you rationalize um when you look at your career and the things you're doing now and that you know the impact you're having and that like like a great artist you may not be around to see the impact it has on the world
2: Uh, that's okay i mean i'm building a team at the moment yeah i mean the team's good They're, they're mainly female they're mainly in their late 20s early 30s they're very bright they're academics they're practitioners they're consultants um, I just had a 9,000-word um, book chapter accepted without revision, which has never happened before. My limit was 6,000. They accepted 9,000 without any request. This is the Oxford Handbook on Foresighting. Uh, the reason it's been accepted is my own team beat me up thoroughly for three months before I even put it in, right? And they don't allow me out unescorted <laughs> anymore. I think the idea that you have an individual inheritance is always a mistake. You should think of yourself as part of an extended family or a team and the important point is your work continues in that right secondly we are getting results much faster right so when change happens in human systems it happens in rapid phase shifts now you know the 30 20 percent it's it's about 15 20% of the market buy new things and if you dominate that market the rest follows that's the bit which interests me if i can impact there i know the rest will follow anyway um, and also, I think you know, it comes to the, the, the thing about leader. We've got to stop thinking about leadership as something which is individual. It's actually collective. You know, all talking about servant leaders is just nonsense, right? Yeah, you know, leadership, if you look at our ancestry, is combinations of roles in extended families and clans. So in an aircraft, there's always a pilot, but who the pilot is can change. Yeah, and that's what we need to start to think about in organisations. We over-focus on leadership qualities, the and the agile mindset, which is complete nonsense. There's no such thing as a mindset or a mental models. That's a crazy concept from the 80s. This idea that if you just get the right people magically, everything will work is nonsense. The only thing you can legitimately change, which has the biggest impact, is how people interact with each other. If you focus on that, yeah, and monitoring, you get very powerful results very quickly.
3: Thank you so much. Incredible.
1: Maybe one last question before before, before wrapping up. Uh, what's your hope that's going to happen next to the whole agile landscape? Um,
2: that we that the people who created original methods. So that would include Scrum, Kanban, team topologies. I could go through a list. Yeah. Effectively, and we're trying to help this find a way to work together to, to synergize. And we stop the aggregators. You know, the people who take the Spotify model, team topologies, and then rebadge it and put their own certification around it. So I think this idea of going to the original sources is key, of allowing those to combine and recombine in different ways and rewarding people who create novel methods rather than people who just synthesize existing approaches. I think if agile does that and in parallel with that starts to take a strategic position on i t which means starting to research and present solutions to unarticulated problems of senior middle management, then I think agile becomes a sustainable movement, yeah, but it's got to stop thinking it's a fad and it's got it's got to stop pretending agile is some sort of religious movement, and you can see that it's almost like you know it, the US Bible belt is problem for this because agile is the rapture <laughs> if we just go agile then we will be magically transported to a future state all right and when that doesn't work you have rapture 2.0 <laughs> and that's not the way we should think
1: I, it's so funny that you mentioned this specifically i've i've been getting article after article popping up on my feed saying agile is dead scrum is dead this is over that's over mm-hmm. it's, it's it is it seems like the rapture Dave, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for spending your Friday nights with us. Um, from
2: yeah, real pleasure.
3: From the look of it,
1: our audience enjoyed it as well. I'm pretty sure Jim enjoyed it too. Jimmy, any last remarks?
3: No, just thank you so much for spending the time with us, and I got to go off and do some deep thinking now. Thanks, Dave.
1: <laughs> Likewise, thank you so much. Pleasure.
0: That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, joining our warm and welcoming Discord community, or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility Podcast.